Hi there, folks, and welcome to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you for sharing the love. Don't think we're not noticing the heartwarming reviews. You're all sharing on the iTunes store. Here's a recent one for you. Will Wallner from the U.S. writes, If you're thinking about investing in Japan real estate, this podcast has a ton of useful information, highly recommended, lots of useful insights and practical knowledge. Thank you for that one, Will. Truly appreciate it. And you've just won yourself a free lunch or dinner on us next time you're here in Japan. Hopefully not too far off now. And I know that I always mention this at the end of the episode when most of you are probably already uh, tuning off or skipping to the next one on your playlist. So today... Be a sport and do it right now if you can. That's right. Pick up that phone if you're listening from an iPhone. I know a lot of you are. Pause the playback if you want to. And it's just a few clicks from that pause button. Seriously, via the podcast app. Same place. Click on Library, Shows, Japan Real Estate. Then scroll down just a little bit more to those stars and either hit one of them. Uh, Five would be better, of course. Or just under that, even better, write a review. Go on. I'll wait. Dum-de-dum-dum-dum. Do-do-do-do. Awesome. Thank you for that. Truly appreciate it. Okay, so for today's episode, I'd like to preach a bit about the importance of listening to the experts. And this mainly relates to those of you who don't have a huge amount of experience in the local property market here in Japan, of course, meaning this is either your first property investment overall, or you're an experienced investor. The second case can actually be a bit more dangerous, and this one I know from personal experience. If you've listened to the interview I've given to My Biggest Investment Mistake podcast, you probably know what I'm talking about, and I'll link to that one again in this episode's show notes. So I'm just going to throw a few examples out there, and some of our clients who are listening in will probably recognize their own stories in those. Please don't be offended. This doesn't reflect on you at all. Those mistakes are all very common, very understandable Uh, Not to mention very relatable. We've all been there, or at least most of us have. But the point I'm trying to make is that if you're working with a realtor or a property manager or a building and renovation company, or if you're using a buyer's agent proxy like ourselves, meaning if you've done the research and you got the positive reviews from other clients of the uh, professional that you're working with, it's probably a very good idea to listen to them and try to follow their lead. And if you're not sure about them or you haven't been able to verify their professionalism via conversation or a verifiable review from an existing or past client, might be a good idea to look a bit harder um, and maybe find a different professional before pulling the trigger. So, for instance, to further expand on this particular example, one of the first signs of a less than ideal realtor could be in the lack of details um, provided on particular locations that they happen to be advertising properties listed in. At least as far as investment goes, obviously people who are purchasing properties to live in have some familiarity with the locations that they review, but investors often don't. And if the realtor you're communicating with fails to present the downsides of every particular location, and there's always a downside, even if it's a minute one, that's not a good sign. So we've taken on, for example, quite a few clients who have purchased properties in Japan direct via realtors. And they ended up purchasing in less than ideal locations in much the same way that we did when we first entered the market personally. So looking at theoretical or current returns and failing to take note of basic city fundamentals, right? So these may feature such red flags as, say, a declining population or a single industry or a really hardcore blue-collar nature and so forth, single employers, All of these are not to say that you shouldn't be looking at these spots. They can provide uh, affordable deals at high yields. 
But the risk factor is obviously far higher compared with a lower yield, higher price, uh, stable investment property in a prime metropolitan area or, say, a prefectural capital, for instance. And while everything seems to be good pre-purchase and even shortly after settlement, it's normally when your tenants start moving out that you discover the true nature of that less-than-ideal location. And if at that point in time your entire portfolio consists of these subpar locations, you'll probably see your income fall off a cliff. So as mentioned, we've taken on a few of these clients, and in many cases our main strategy at that point would be to quickly try and explain to them or I should actually say convince them because it's not as easy as explaining that what they thought was a certain yield or a certain resale price is just not feasible anymore, regardless of how well the numbers looked on paper when they purchased. And that can be a rough awakening for many, but really in most of these cases, sometimes the best strategy is just to let those properties go, even if it's a slight loss, and reinvest in something that's a bit more attractive. Um, other examples. So in other cases, we've had clients who, again, are experienced investors in other countries, and they bring their own experience to the table and into the newly chosen uh, investment destination. But unfortunately, not everything translates as well here in Japan, simply because it's a unique market in many aspects. So these pre-assumptions can include anything, right, from asset class focus, for instance, single family homes or houses are generally speaking not the best investment as far as um, normal residential leases go, or the age of the property, something we've discussed time and time again here on the podcast. For someone from the US or Europe, it's an extremely difficult concept to wrap their heads around uh, that properties, uh, even reinforced concrete properties that are 30 years uh, old and beyond, can often, unless they're extremely well-located or they have really serious um, other redeeming aspects, they can quickly lose both their value and their ability to generate reasonable yields. And we have had quite a few new clients who, in spite of our recommendation and advice, have chosen to focus on properties that were too old, um, or on old wooden houses, for example, which are great for owners-occupiers, again, or for accommodation businesses, but they're normally not a very attractive long-term residential lease type of investment here in Japan. And I honestly can count on maybe one or two fingers, not even one hand, the cases in which this sort of strategy turned out to be a good and stable income generator for them. Now, in other cases, um, we've had clients put their foot down, and they still do sometimes, as far as property management is concerned. So they refuse, for example, to acknowledge that average rent for comparable properties in their area is lower than what they want the property to rent out for. Or they refuse to acknowledge that a certain renovation or repair is required to attract tenants um, whether it's to attract quality tenants or even any tenant at all. Or they might refuse to acknowledge that in a country where a third of the population is over 60, it's not a good idea to lock elderly tenants out of their properties, since that'll most definitely mean much longer vacancies. Um, or that for some reason, properties located in the fourth or fifth floors of buildings without elevators might not be a good idea. Again, locking out a third of the tenant base uh, all of the elderly people, or more, if you also take into account single moms who would religiously avoid uh, living in units which require them to carry babies or toddlers along with a huge amount of heavy shopping bags up three or four flights of stairs, they're just not going to do that. Or say, in cases where a particular property is more difficult to repopulate, either because, again, the owner insists on a higher than average rent amount, or because there are newer and more attractive properties that have been built recently in the area, 
or simply because it's a bad time of the year for whatever reason. In those cases, again, we say it's a good idea to increase the property manager's placement commission so that they can share the uh, listing with other property managers and share the commission as well, or to offer some bonuses to potential tenants, say like a short free rental period or participation in the tenants' move-in fees and so on and so forth. And they're insisting not to do it. And this insistence, again, almost always results in extended vacancies that end up costing the landlord far more than those nicer renovations or slightly pricier properties or slightly lower rent amounts would have cost them in the immediate and long term. Now, we and the property managers who live and breathe their local markets, whether they're employed by us or directly by the property owners, we know this. We know this all too well, um, mainly from painful, long experience. So again, the main message here is that if you're operating in a foreign market or one that's at least foreign to you, the first and foremost thing to do is to pick the professionals that you're working with carefully. But once you've done your due diligence on those companies and you elected to work with them, it's also really important to listen to the advice that they give you, even if you don't like it, even if it doesn't sound like what you might have pictured, even if things are done differently wherever you're originally from, and even if you think you may have better ideas. So ask questions certainly suggest ideas for sure, but at the end of the day, you pick these professionals for a reason because hopefully they know what they're doing. So it's usually a good idea to also take their advice along the way. And while we at least are an internationally oriented company, so we would normally clearly communicate our advice and cautions in no uncertain terms, if you're working directly with Japanese professionals, that's often not going to be the case. So a Japanese professional is not, not really going in most cases at least um, to strongly debate strategy with a client. The client is always right and it goes beyond that. The client is God Almighty as far as most of them are concerned. And conflict is to be avoided at all costs. So they'll simply nod their heads after an exchange or two. They'll accept your instruction as gospel. They'll stop offering their advice. And your property, more often than not, will just remain vacant. And that's, as far as the bottom line is concerned, that's the worst possible result in a market where capital growth is very far from being a given. So cash flow through rental income is of prime importance here, far more so than in most other countries. So really, again, the primary takeaway here is pick your professionals wisely. And once you've done so, listen to us, damn it. We're here to make things work. And we usually know what we're doing. All right. So that's it from us for today, folks. Enough preaching, I think. Hope you've enjoyed this episode, even if for some of you it was a bit of a hard pill to swallow. If you have, please share this podcast with your networks or anyone that you might think might find some value in it. And thank you again for your ratings and reviews. I hope you've put those in at the start of the episode. But if you haven't, please do so now on the iTunes Store, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Your word of mouth recommendation of this podcast is hugely appreciated. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, have a great day or night, wherever in the world you might be. Yoshiku. Thank you.